turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. We finished the 16th chapter last week, so we'll pick it up with John 17, starting in verse 1. You'll note in your Bibles that if you have a red letter Bible, that uh, all but the first, uh, all but the first sentence is the red letter words of Jesus. John chapter 17, starting with verse 1, we'll read just the first eight verses. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life. They may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work that you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with, with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Let's pray again. Father, we ask for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Jesus, for this prayer that you pray to the Father that we get to not only see it, treasure it, but read it, study it, meditate on it, understand it more deeply. Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to teach and to preach what you have uh, wanted me to say, or Lord, even things that I did not prepare that you would want said. Lord, we pray for the anointing work of the Holy Spirit. I could never do justice to what you have said in these words, but Lord, I pray that I'd be faithful, and Lord, we would all be faithful to obey and to hear the voice of the Lord and uh, we pray, Lord, just that you would have, have us to have soft hearts and open ears. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I believe you all know that prayer is found in the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. You'll find it in the first book, you'll find it in the last book, and all points in between. We can see in the pages of Scripture, Abraham praying, Moses praying, Hannah praying, and then she had little Samuel. David praying, Daniel praying, Mary, the mother of Jesus praying, Peter praying, Paul praying, to name just a few of the many saints recorded in the scriptures that we literally see praying to God. Prayer is a gift from God. It's a vital means of talking to God, but also listening to God. Prayer is both required and essential to walk with God. Do you agree with that? It's essential. It's like breathing. And we learn the attributes and the intentions of prayer from so many different texts in Scripture. The Psalms, for example. We learn a lot about prayer in Psalms. We've been going through the Psalms, if you've been coming. The book of Acts. We see a lot of prayer in the book of Acts. The epistles, for example, these teach us about prayer. But hearing Jesus pray, hearing Jesus pray, his actual words to God the Father, well, that provides a perspective. It provides a depth. It provides an encouragement that supersedes all the other prayer passages in Scripture. If you're taking notes, you see the title this morning, The Prayer of of Jesus. Glorify the Son. The prayer of Jesus. Glorify the Son. This is part one. We'll take three weeks on this. If you've been with us in the book of John, we've, seen, we've already seen Jesus pray the Father. You may not remember the text, but we have seen Jesus pray. Back in chapter 11, for example, Jesus prayed at the tomb of Lazarus. In chapter 12, Jesus prayed in the temple. In each instance, in John's Gospel and the other three Gospels, 
the prayers of Jesus that we already read before are powerful. But those moments, they were a lot more brief. They were a lot smaller prayers, much shorter. John 17, which I didn't read the whole thing this morning because we're going to take our time, is a 26-verse prayer that Jesus prays just before the cross. Now, you're all probably familiar, no doubt, with two sections of the Gospels, two passages. One's found in Matthew chapter 6. One's found in Luke chapter 11, where Jesus begins to speak, and these words will sound very familiar to you. Matthew 6, Luke 11, he says, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You guys know that. Near Christmas, you will see, you'll see some Italian tenor sing this, right? You'll see people in Broadway sing the Lord's Prayer. And we know from Luke chapter 11, verse 1, that the disciples had just asked Jesus there in Luke 11, teach us how to pray. And what follows is Jesus giving these words, which some people refer to it as the Lord's Prayer. But the accurate description is not the Lord's Prayer, not of Luke 11 and Matthew 6. The accurate description is the model prayer. My Bible's heading actually says model prayer, which is the correct way to look at it, and maybe yours does as well. It's the model prayer because Jesus was teaching the disciples how to pray. When Jesus says, forgive us our trespasses, that's something Jesus would never ever have to pray. He has no trespasses. So he was showing them how to pray. It was not his prayer. He was teaching them, this is how you guys need to pray. John 17, however, can very accurately be thought of as the Lord's Prayer. This one you can call, John 17, you can call this one the Lord's Prayer. You could also call it, as I have on the screen, the Prayer of Jesus. Any of those titles would suffice as that's exactly what it is. It's the in-depth prayer of Jesus for himself, for his disciples, and for all believers that would ever live, including us and those that are going to come after us. This prayer is also the longest prayer in the Bible. I don't know if you guys knew that. This is the longest prayer in Scripture. Makes sense that it should be Jesus, right? If we're going to hear anyone pray, for a long prayer, it should be him. Yet it only takes three minutes to read this prayer, unless you're from the Deep South. Then it takes about four. <laughs> and if you're from Boston, about two and a half. So it just, it, but in generalities, it's about a three-minute prayer, which tells us something about our public prayers. If the longest public prayer can be read in three minutes, at prayer meetings, we should not drone on for on and on in public prayers. You can have all the time in your prayer closet, but public prayer should be kept sincere and brief. That's why I love to hear kids pray. You just get the heart of it. (laughs) Heal grandma, amen. You know, that's kind of like, and they mean it. And some of you parents, when your kids pray, we learn a lot about your house uh, uh, when they pray. You know, it's short, but it gets to the point. And dad's temper, you know, that kind of thing, you know, just kind of comes out. But this prayer, it comes at the end of the upper room discourse, and it's Jesus speaking to his Father. Just before leaving the upper room, crossing the Kidron, the Brook Kidron, and then going into the Garden of Gethsemane, this prayer has also been called the Holy of Holies of the entire New Testament, this prayer. You know, some things in this world are called magnificent, and they're really not. You ever seen somebody say, that's magnificent? You're like, it was okay, you know? This prayer is magnificent. The length of this prayer, text-wise, would equal about one-third of the entire upper room discourse. So if you kind of look at the text in your Bible, it would be comparable to about a third. But yet its importance, it cannot be measured at all. So we're going to take the next two Sundays today and then uh, the next two Sundays to finish this 17th chapter to examine it together. So when Jesus begins to pray here, You'll recall that the evening began. He's still in the same upper room here. The discourse has ended, but the evening began with what? The Passover meal. 
He sat down. It's sometimes referred that Passover meal, only that Passover meal, is sometimes referred to as the Last Supper. It's where we get communion. Why was it the Last Supper? It was the last Passover meal, the last any of the feast meal, but the, specifically the Passover meal, the last Passover that Jesus would take before he died on the cross. That's why it's sometimes referred to as that. Then after the meal, after they had had that Passover meal together, Jesus began doing what? Washing the disciples' feet. He washed all 12 disciples' feet. He even washed Judas's feet. Shortly after washing all their feet, Satan entered into Judas. Do you guys recall that? Satan entered into Judas, and Judas left the room to go carry out the betrayal of Jesus. This is all the same night. Understand that this is all relevant because Jesus will actually even mention the betrayal in the middle of this prayer, or the son of perdition, which is none other than Judas himself. We'll get to that uh, next week. After Judas left the room, Jesus then taught and encouraged just the 11, which we've been going through all the way through chapter 16, with three and a half chapters of teaching and exhortation and encouragement and revelation to prepare them for his death, which they still don't understand. They don't understand it's coming. Now it's even closer. And their future. So, back to verse 1. That kind of gives you a little backdrop of where we're at here in chapter 17. Back to verse 1, Jesus begins to pray, Father, the hour has come. He lifted up his eyes. Um, by the way, Jesus lifted up his eyes. Did you know you can pray with your eyes open? Yes. Jesus did right here. He lifted up his eyes. You can just as much pray like this as bow and pray. Both are really led of the Spirit at a time. Does that make sense? So there are times when I totally feel like Lord wants me to get on my knees, bow my head, because that is a prayer posture we can find in Scripture. It's not a made-up thing. It's in the Scriptures. But there's also times where God says, lift up your eyes and pray. And when you're driving, always, <laughs> always lift up your eyes and pray. Unless you're at a short light, someone will let you know if your prayer is, you know, They'll think you're on your phone. No, I'm actually praying, you know, that kind of thing. But I think the Spirit will tell us at times, this is the posture of your prayer right now. And just, it's not something that I hear audibly. You just kind of have that, if you have a walk with the Lord, you know, this is, a, this is the time. And sometimes we just have a short prayer. But Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he begins to pray, Father, the hour has come. The disciples, now we know the disciples are partly sorrowful, in fact, probably mostly sorrowful, but they're also partly hopeful because of what he just finished with last week that we looked at at the end of chapter 16. He's just told them, recall from last week, at the end of chapter 16, he's told that the, them that in him, no other way, but in him, they can have peace and they can even be of good cheer no matter what. If Jesus leaves, if he stays, no matter what happens, they can have peace, they could be of good cheer because he said he had overcome the world. Not that he could overcome the world or maybe in the future would overcome the world. He said he had overcome the world. Before the cross and before the resurrection, he had already overcome the world. Amen? Amen. Amen? So he just told them that. Then he starts praying. But hearing Jesus pray, he's already carefully and thoroughly taught them. But hearing him pray to God, the Father, audibly and with such clarity as we go through this chapter, Jesus is so clear and specific. Hearing him pray is going to assure them. It's going to comfort them. It's going to inform them this evening in ways that his teaching didn't, even though they'll work together. His teaching and his prayer will come and be like a blanket around them. Together, it's not just the prayer or just the teaching, it's the prayer and the teaching. That's why you need not only to sit into, under teaching, you need to go to prayer meetings. Prayer means where God will knit you in relationship with people. That's when you'll come and you'll feel like, I feel disconnected. You'll pray with someone, you're like, wow, I feel like I've known you forever. That's the work of the Spirit in prayer. Amen. 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 
but he's going, to incur, he's going to encourage them through this prayer. He's going to teach them and reveal even more to them. Every bit as much of his, through his discourse, he'll do the same in his prayer, and he'll do that for the rest of their lives. So where does Jesus start with his prayer? You see it in the text. Father, first word. Father, comma. The Father, everything that will ever be done on this earth, everything that's ever been done or will be done or needs to be done, is done by the will of God the Father. Amen. Just like creation, just like Bethlehem, just like the cross that's coming here. But when Jesus says Father, it's not just that the Father is where the starting point of everything is. It's also his relationship with the Father. So many of our problems in America are because of single homes where there is no father. Right? That's why we have a lot of the problems. And if you're a single parent here, we love you. We want to minister to you. We want to be everything we can for you. But God's design is relationship. Fathers matter. Mothers matter. But God the Father was never absent. Present. He starts with the Father. We see that relationship. But as he turns his attention and his petition to the Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son. He turns to this petition. He turns to the one who sent him. He turns to the one who loves him. He turns to the one he's in perfect harmony with. And he says, the hour has come. This, this hour is why Jesus has come. He was in perfect agreement with the Father on the reason for the mission. He first said the hour had come at the beginning of this Passover week, not the beginning of the discourse. That was the same night. The beginning of the week, several days earlier. He first said at the beginning of the Passover week, and it was also the reason for the upper room gathering. And I put it up on the screen. It's found in John 12, 23, beginning of the week, this Passover week. And then John 13, 1. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come, the Son of Man should be glorified. Then in John 13, 1, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that the hour had come, this is the upper room here, that he should depart from the world of the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them in the end. But it said, the hour had come. In two places there, the hour had come. I'll keep these up on the screen as they're both connected and they're interwoven uh, to this prayer of Jesus. But prior to this Passover week, all the points in his ministry prior to this Passover week, when Jesus spoke of the hour, he said, my hour has not yet come. Did you know that? Prior to this Passover week, John records it three times, he said the hour had not yet come. Now he says the hour has come. But the opening request of Jesus to the Father, same as he stated at the beginning of the week. It said that the Son would be glorified, which is the same way of saying here where he says in the prayer, glorify your Son. Two phrases that mean the exact same thing. Son be glorified, glorify your Son. That's what he prays. Jesus is saying this hour, use this upcoming and unimaginable suffering of crucifixion on a Roman cross, use it to glorify your son. To bring glory to your son. Yet not just for himself. He says, glorify your son, that your son may also glorify you. Not just for himself. The son wanted to glorify the father. And let me say this to all of us. If Jesus desired that his suffering and his entire life would glorify the Father, do we not want our lives and even the suffering in our, in our lives to glorify God the Father? Yeah, that's why he allows these things. If his son suffered, we're going to suffer some. But the totality of our life should glorify God the Father in our response to it. And sometimes it's not even a big deal. Yesterday, I thought I was suffering because I, I was up. My daughter's at college, me and my wife. We waited for four hours for AAA to come for a car issue with my daughter's car. That wasn't really suffering. It was annoying, but it wasn't suffering. 
And the guy finally got there. He was the only driver for the entire region. And all we could be is just gracious and just little things. Just say, thanks for coming. No big deal. Don't worry about it. God wants the big things, the little things, no matter what it is, to glorify him with our life. Verse 2 goes on in verse 2 here. He says, As you have given him, him being Jesus, authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Equal to the son's desire to please and glorify the father, the father desires, and of course he has, to honor the son with the authority, with the kingship that is due his worthiness in fulfilling the will, fulfilling the will of the Father. If you go back to John chapter 3, and I've gone back to it several times in this study, Jesus' nighttime conversation with Nicodemus, that Nick at night discussion, remember that? And God gave the Son to the world, and the Son gave his life to the world. But now, in the foreordained, beyond our comprehension, orchestration of God, he has given the Son, who has given his own life, all authority over all flesh. That means that Jesus has authority over every single soul that ever has lived, is living now, or ever will live. Amen? Every person you walk past this week, Jesus has authority over their soul. Every person you will ever meet in your lifetime, Jesus has authority over their soul. Every celebrity you see on TV, Jesus has celebrity over, uh, now he has authority over their celebrity. Um, mind moving faster than tongue. But anyway, Jesus has authority over every voice you hear on the radio. Any person you meet, hear, see, he has authority over every single soul. That doesn't mean that that person has ever submitted to his authority. That's why the Bible says at some point, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. They don't know yet he has authority over their soul. But he says it right here, over all flesh. Did you know all flesh means all flesh? Everyone ever born. That's what it means. So... He's given this authority over every soul. Nobody can bypass or slip past the authority of Jesus. Nobody can do an end around the authority of Jesus. Nobody can find a covering for their sin outside the atoning blood of Jesus. His authority and his atoning are both exclusive to him. His authority is exclusive. His atoning blood is exclusive. There's not a secondary option to say, well, I, can't, I don't want Jesus' blood. How about this person's blood to cover my sins? Wouldn't work. Well, I don't want him as my authority. I choose Confucius or Buddha or Muhammad. Doesn't work. They're dead in the grave just like the rest of us will be, right? They don't have any authority over your flesh. They didn't even have authority over their own flesh. And nobody will be able to say to God, I believed in you, but not in your son. I've heard people tell me that. I've literally had people tell me this. I do believe in God, I just don't believe in Jesus. I've had, plenty, I've had people tell me that. I said, well, I, I just think he was a good man. God, yeah, we, we all have the same God. No, no, you'll never be able to say to God, I believed in you, but not your son. Right. Well, you can say it, but it'll be way too late. And I, at that point, nobody would say it. They would say, now I do believe, but at that point, it is too late. The father will look to the son, and the son will say either, well done, or depart from me. Right. That's it. There's not another option. He'll look. The father will say, are they in you or not? And the son will say, well done, come on in, or depart, I never knew you. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, I have it up on the screen, this is also an encounter that John, same John that's writing this uh, book of John, John was in the spirit on the Lord's day, so the first day of the week, and he was on the Isle of Patmos, and Jesus came to him, and he said other things, but he said this, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, 
Amen. And I have the keys of Hades or hell and death. Jesus is the one who lives. He is the one alive forevermore. He's the one who gives life. He's the one who is alive and is the resurrection. And he gives resurrection power and life to every soul that's been born through him, through the work of salvation. But don't forget, he holds the keys to death and hell. It says it. He says it. It's not even like someone else says it about him. He says, I hold the keys to death and hell. If you ever meet someone and say, well, the Jesus I know wouldn't condemn anything, I'm like, you don't know the Jesus of the Bible. Did you know he holds the keys to death and hell? That's a sobering thought, isn't it? He holds the keys to death and hell. Those that are still in their sins... He is the only one that can pull them out of the curse of death and hell and into eternal life. But once he locks the key and locks the door for eternity, no one comes out. He holds that key. The latter half of verse 2, he says that he should give eternal life to as many, that the Father should give to him eternal life to as many as you have given him. So the question Another one of my classic questions I like to pose. Does Jesus give eternal life to every soul, or has the Father given every soul to Jesus? Yes. Yes. Because yes. both are stated in the text. Jesus says, I give eternal life, but he also says the Father gives them to me. I don't understand that. You don't have to. <laughs> no, did he say anywhere there, did he say anywhere in there you have to deeply understand what I just said. No, he said you have to accept in other places, not here, but the scripture you have to accept what I've said. I've accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. I believed his word. Didn't mean, we'll talk about this as we get to the end. Doesn't mean you'll understand every single word. I've heard professors when I was in college speak for an hour and I understood a third of what they said and still learned enough to pass the class. I did not say to them, because I did not understand every word you said, I'm quitting the class. They're fine, you just won't graduate. Don't be stubborn or stiff-necked. Receive what the Lord is saying. Amen? Just receive what he's saying. The, the fact of the matter is, he gives salvation to every soul, but the Father's given those souls to the Son. That's what it says. That's what he says. But what it really conveys is it's two sides of the same coin. You know when you have a coin, you have the same coin, you have the same copper coin, Abraham Lincoln on one side, the Lincoln Memorial on the other side, same coin, right? Two sides of the same coin. The Father and the Son, they're in total unity over the work of salvation. It's two views of the same coin. They're in total unity of the salvation. The Son gives the gift, and the Father gives the souls to the Son. Verse 3, and this is eternal life. Let me say that again. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the, one, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let's keep in mind that Jesus is praying here. He's praying to the Father. But the unity that's seen through prayer, even in our own prayer life with God, we see our unity with the Father, but the unity... Seen throughout the prayer, Jesus expresses here that he is in agreement with the Father, and the Father and the Son are in agreement in the impartation, the imparting of salvation. They're in total agreement in how salvation is given. What it looks like. No other religion can provide eternal life. Amen? No other religion can provide it. They can provide some semblance of kind of temporary happiness, some semblance of meaning, but not eternal life. If they say they can provide eternal life, I've got a simple teaching for you. It's a lie. <laughs> if they say they can give you eternal life, it's a lie. They can't. If I tell any of you that I have a 50-inch vertical jump, which I didn't even have in high school, but if I tell you I have a 50-inch vertical jump, you can hand me a ball and say, go out to that hoop out in their parking lot and prove it, and you'll find that it might, might be 12 inches now. <laughs> right? 
Jesus is the only one that can give eternal life, and he can prove it. He proved it with his own resurrection. But Jesus, going back to verse 2, he gives eternal life to those that the Father gives him. But what does it look like to have eternal life? What does it look like? He said, and this is eternal life, that they may know you. It's not religion. You've heard this before. It's a relationship. Amen. It's a relationship. Amen. Eternal life is to know God. That's not all it is, but that's where it starts. It's many more things than that, but at minimum, although the minimum is a maximum, to know God. Not to know about God, but to know him as Father. Right. As your personal Father. As your Father. That's why he said in the model prayer, not the Lord's Prayer, our Father which art in heaven. That's teaching us. Now that you have him as Father, talk to him as Father. And to know him as the only true God. There's not multiple gods. Well, there are names of multiple gods, but they're all false gods, and there are really no gods at all. Pharaoh found this out, right? All of his gods couldn't do anything. They worshipped all these things, and they became the very plagues that came on him. And if you know God as Father, guess what? You know the Son. He says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You know the Father and the Son. It is impossible to separate the Father from the Son. A saved soul believes in the Son and comes to know the Father. Let me say that again. A saved soul believes in the Son and comes to know the Father. That's why, going back, you can't say, I believe in you, God, but I don't believe in the Son. No, the Son is the entryway. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is, what he's doing here, I, he's praying to God, but he and the Father are reflecting upon what he has secured in coming to the world. Now, it was as good as done, but it still had to be done. Does that make sense? Right, right. It was already preordained before the creation, but it still had to be done. He had to step into time and space, although outside of time and space, it had already been done. Well, I don't understand that. Neither do I. <laughs> I just know what it says. Right, right. This all flows into verse 4. Verse 4, he says, I have glorified you... On the earth, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. By submitting to the Father, by coming into the world, by preaching the gospel in the world, by proclaiming eternal life, by providing himself as the way to eternal life, by revealing the Father, Jesus has glorified the Father. And he did this through his sinless perfection through his ministry, and through his obedience to the Father. And in all of that, he has finished the work he was sent to do. We know he was on the earth for 33 years. The first 30 years we know almost nothing about, except for a little bit of his childhood, going up to the temple when he was 12. We know almost nothing from 12 to 30. We know he had a three-year ministry. He did more in three years than all the rest of us will do all combined, and everyone else in the history of the world combined, in just those three years, John makes that clear at the end of his book. But then, when he came to close the chapter on all that was work finished to be done, that finished right here at the Upper Room Discourse. The end of chapter 16, that closes the book on the work he was sent to do, the ministry work, the teaching, the preaching. What remains now, that work is finished. I have finished the work. That ministry work is done. What remains now is his suffering, his dying, and his rising. All that will happen in just three and a half days. Three days, but I mean the, the, the crucifixion is not till the following morning. That's why I say three and a half. But if it was starting from the morning, all that will take place in three days. The other part took place in three years, and the span of his life was 33 years. So you have basically a 30 years, a three years, and a three days. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then you have him at the cross say what? It is finished. Now the totality. Here he says, I finished the work. But he's finished this first work of calling the disciples, preaching, bringing these disciples to the Father, all before the hour had come. Which brings us to verse 5. And now 
O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory with which I had with you before the world was. So he starts this fifth um, verse, and now. I kind of have it capitalized in my notes. And now. He uses this now is this, this time that's in the hour that's come, and now, essentially, he's asking the Father, use this excruciating time that is now ready to be fulfilled. Jesus is praying that the Father will use the suffering and the public spectacle of the cross, uh, that out of that shame of uh, being hung, humiliating there on the cross, that out of that shame, a glory would come that was only visible to the triune God before the world began or anyone could see. Listen to what Jesus says there at the end of the sentence. He says, the glory, the end of verse 5, and the glory which I had with you before the world was. He's describing something. We, none of us were there. We don't know what that glory looked like, but he's saying at some measure, use this suffering to kind of burst forth that glory that you and I had and let it dawn on the earth, even before the earth was. Kind of like in Genesis, he says, let there be light, that the cross would be kind of its own burst of light. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. It's interesting that he was saying that out of the shame that the, that the triune God, it would, be, it would be recognized, it would be seen, that glory would be visible somehow. It's interesting that in the first century, the word glory... In the common vernacular there, the word glory related to a person's reputation. And the word glory relative to their reputation was referred to one's, the highest opinion you could have of somebody and their reputation meant their glory. The highest opinion you could have of them. But the only opinion that matters as it relates to Jesus it's God's opinion. Amen. Not our opinion. Our opinion, God says, hey, Tim, what do you think of my son? He does not care what I think. He has his own witness of his son. Amen. Who he is highly exalted, the scriptures tell us. But the scriptural use of the word glory, so in the common vernacular of the first century, the glory was someone's reputation, and if they're the highest opinion of their reputation, that meant they had some measure of glory. But not in the scripture. The scriptural use of the word glory, as it relates to God and Jesus, anywhere in the Bible, the scriptural use of the word glory, it means splendor, brightness, or majesty. That supersedes anyone's opinion anyway. It's just like splendor is splendor. Majesty is majesty. Brightness is brightness. But when we take the two meanings, because everything's done on purpose with God, it was written in the first century on purpose, and God knew the scriptural meaning of glory as it related to Jesus. And those two, we kind of bring them together. When we take those two meanings, the cross is going to affirm the Father's witness or opinion of his Son, but it's also going to bring about the splendor of the glory and majesty of God through the resurrection. Amen? So both will actually be in view. And even the cross itself, even the cross itself will have its own glory, even though it's a deathly spectacle, it actually has it's a measure of glory and even has the ability to change opinions. How do we know this? Because we have it in the Bible. You've heard me quote this before. Mark 15, 39. The cross itself changed opinions. So when the centurion, who stood opposite him, saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. I find this fascinating. You know, the cross was such a, uh, a barbaric, gory spectacle. But the centurion, who had probably put many people to death, had probably run many people through the sword, said, time out. I've seen a lot of people die. I've never seen anyone die remotely like this man. This was God's son. Like everybody else that was spitting on him, laughing at him, mocking him, he was like, no, no, no. This convinces me he's God's son, whereas other people just, if you're really God's son, why don't you get off the cross, right? 
but he was convinced. So the cross, even in the darkest hour, was shining a glory even then. Amen? Amen. Amen. David Foster, in uh, the book Praying Through the Book of John, he had this to say. He says, glory has little to do with the start. It has everything to do with the finish. As Jesus finishes everything that God gave him to do, it's going to glorify the Father. It's going to glorify the Son. It's going to glorify the work of salvation. And even, brother and sister, for us in this room and those of you that are watching online, even for us, and we've seen this by people that have already uh, gone home to be with the Lord before us, that have lived a faithful life, not a perfect life. He never says, well done, good and perfect servant. He only says, well done, good and faithful servant. But even as we have seen people finish well, every time a saint and the Lord finishes well, it brings glory not to the saint, but to the Father that helped them finish the course. I told the first first services. I, I, I mean this when, with all sincerity. Um, I could never do, the, I would never even have chosen to be a pastor. I didn't choose to be a pastor. God chose me to be one. I, I, I really liked my prior career. You guys should know that by now. I did not choose this. I would not have chosen this. I would have said no and tried to say no. My wife can guarantee you that. I tried to say no several times and God would not take no for an answer, but I would not ever attempt to pastor without the help of God, to finish whatever I'm supposed to start, Amen. period. And if it wasn't for him, I probably would have bailed a long time ago. But he's the one that, whatever you're in your life, he will help you finish. Amen. The glory is in finishing, not just, well, anyone can start something, but only God can help you finish something. Amen. Verse 6, and we've got to kind of pull these last few together. Uh, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. In the scripture, the name, you see names often in scripture, the name refer, refers to a person, their attributes, their character. As you probably have noticed as you've gone through the Bible, did you always notice that Bible names always have a meaning? Yeah. Right? Peter, your name Simon meant shifty. Now I'm calling you Peter. It means rock. Rock's way better than shifty. I mean, no one, you know, hey, shifty, come here. You know, no one fe feels that way. But, but Jacob, your main name means deceiver. How have you been enjoying that name your lifetime? You know, your name means deceiver. How about I call you Israel instead, right? right, right. So you, you see that through the Bible, names mean something. Jesus had manifested and revealed not only the name of the Father, but the nature of the Father. The true nature of the Father, he revealed that to the disciples. And in the eternal plan of God, Jesus went and he called each individual disciple, because he says here, um, I've manifested your name to them, uh, to the men you've given me. They were yours, you gave them me, and, I, and they've kept your word. So we know that Jesus, uh, he went and sought out each of the disciples, he told them, drop your nets and follow me. He went and found them one by one. But they had each been chosen and given by God the Father to the Son to lay the foundation of the church. In other words, God chose them and gave them as gifts to the Son, but Jesus also chose them. And we know why. Ephesians chapter verse 20. Now, this is not the only reason. He loved them individually just like he loves the whole world, loved their soul. But there was a special purpose for the apostles and these 12 disciples. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, God the Father said, I'm going to give you these 11 men. One more will be the apostle Paul and that will be the 12 because he'll take Judas's place. I'm going to give you these 12 and they will be attached to you the cornerstone as the foundation of the church. And here we are 2,000 years later, we're reading what John, the apostle, wrote. John wrote this because he was part of that foundation. He didn't make himself part of the foundation any more than a brick puts itself in your house. You place the brick there. So Jesus takes their little names, and their, this is John, this is Paul, this is each disciple, and he places them beside each other and he laid the foundation. But the Father gave them, Father gives them the stone with their name on it, and he puts it in this 
foundation. And he says, at the end of this verse, he says, they have kept your word. Don't you want Jesus to say about you one day? He points to you right there and says, that one has kept your word. As flawed as these men were, just like us, as flawed as they were, they were still gifts to Jesus. Isn't it amazing that you're considered a gift to God and you're like, what do I... I don't bring a lot but messes. I don't bring a lot but mistakes. I don't bring a lot but fumbling and bumbling. And God says, I know, but you're still a gift because I am going to transform the gift. And they were gifts to Jesus, and he transformed them and continued to change them. And they still have some more work to do. As you guys know from last week, Peter's going to have a really bad night coming up, right? He's going to deny Jesus three times and all this stuff. But... um, Despite their failures and their imperfections, Jesus said they've kept the Father's word. At at some level, they still kept it. Uh, Jesus alone measures our faithfulness. Aren't you glad about that? Other people are not your measuring stick. Jesus alone measures our faithfulness, and he makes us faithful. As I said earlier, I would never be able to do what I'm called to do, neither would you, if he doesn't help you be faithful. Now, you have to desire to be faithful, but he will help you and even make you be faithful. But he looks at the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The word kept, the word kept means to guard, to watch, or to hold fast. If you keep something of value, you watch it, you guard it, and you make sure, all right, they can have anything else in the house, but not this, right? And the word of Jesus, they, helped, they, they desired to keep the word. It was their intention that Jesus honored. Brother and sister, it's your intention. If you say, Lord, I want to keep your word, he'll help you keep the word. Amen? Yeah. If you say, it's not that big a deal to me, it doesn't make, then, well, first of all, you've got to wonder, where is your relationship with the Lord if, you just, if it's not a big deal to you? But if you say, Lord, I want to keep your word, I know in my own flesh I can't keep your word, but I desire he will help you keep his word, and he does. Verse 7, our last two verses. Now they have known, uh, now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. Very simple verse here in his prayer. Jesus, he is grateful that the disciples have come to understand that all Jesus has presented to them and all he's revealed in his life and his teaching, they have come to really, I mean, deep down their soul, they believe that all this has come from God the Father. They don't believe that Jesus decided, hey, I think I want to... They believe that God the Father said, here's what I want you to deliver to them. And they really believe that God the Father now has set the table and Jesus is the one administering the meal. And that's true. Verse 8, last verse uh, for us this morning. For I have given to them the words which you have given to me, and they have received them, and they have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Not a single thing, right up until and, in th- and then through the Upper Room Discourse, finishing chapter 16, not one single thing that the Father intended to be told to the disciples has been withheld. Nothing. Everything. You and I invariably miss something in everything we do. I don't care if you have the grocery list written down, <laughs> you will get home and lo and behold... How did I miss that? I was on that aisle four times because I don't know that story like I know the other story. And somehow, or one thing you meant to say on the call is the only thing you didn't say. Every single thing Jesus intended to deliver, he's delivered. I've given them everything you've asked me to give. Not a single thing's been withheld. And the disciples, more than that, they've received it all. As I said earlier, this is where I wanted to come back at this point. They may not have understood it all. We know they didn't understand it all. They still didn't understand he was going to the cross. It all went over their head. They may not have understood it all, but they accepted it all and believed it all. I've been saved for 28 years now. There are things that I still do not understand in this Bible, and I will go to my grave not understanding. But I receive them as truth. How about you? I don't even... Matter of fact, the fact that I don't understand everything makes me even more positive that it's from God. Because if I could understand it, 
then what would that make? It, it would be just a man-centered, you know, the things that we can understand. But if it has things that we cannot understand, it shows its divine origin all the more. They've received it, every single word. They've received it as true from God the Father. Jesus goes on and he says, they have surely, that's the word in my Bible, but they have surely believed. Uh, they have sure, known surely. They have known surely that I came. The Greek word for surely means very or most certainly. He said they most certainly. No doubt anymore definitive. They are positive without a doubt that Jesus has come from God. Are you positive without a doubt that Jesus has come from God? Amen. You don't think it's like some man's teeth? Well, he was born and these two people had a relationship. They had a son and they thought he was a prophet. No, no. We know he was born, virgin birth, come from God the Father, unmistakable God in human flesh, Emmanuel. They believe that he was sent from God the Father. And as we come to a close here this morning, when you look at this whole section that we've looked at, verses 1 through 8, um, this part, this closing part, especially verse 8 here, and uh, to some extent verse 6 and 7 as well, uh, but this, this part is a praise from Jesus. Verse 1 and 2 begin as a petition. So if you're taking notes, verses 1 and 2, they begin as a petition. He's asking the Father, Glorify the Son. Do these things. Use this hour to come. Verses 3 and 4, they're a proclamation. He's stating in agreement what God has done in the Son. Verse 5 goes back to petition. Then verses 6 through 8 are clearly also a proclamation, but not only a proclamation, you can put a slash, they're also a praise. They are proclaiming what God has done. They're proclaiming the facts of what Jesus has observed in the disciples and the Father in him. But it's also praise that God has done this. In other words, if he says, if he was to say, Tim is saved, that's a true fact, but it's also a praise of what he's done. Amen? It's both a proclamation and a praise. And he could say that about your life if you come to faith. So you can see the praise, you can see the joy that Jesus has, that genuine faith has been birthed in the disciples. And as we wrap it up this morning, I just ask you this. What can we learn from Jesus in this prayer? What can we learn from Jesus? Well, I want to have, I, I can speak for me, I want to have this kind of praise and this kind of joy of what God has done in my life and what he's done with the truth that he's given, but also to acknowledge all God has done and to pray for his glory in everything. Amen? Everything in our life, that he always gets the glory. Father, we thank you again for this time this morning. Lord, may you get and gain all the glory in our lives. You're not asking us to go to the cross, but you are asking us to give all glory back to you. And Lord, we desire to do so. And Lord, even this morning, if there's anyone that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, I pray that they would come up after this service and speak to us. We, we would love to introduce them to a relationship with Jesus as Savior and the Father in that personal intimacy and communion that you have given through the shed blood and resurrection of your Son. It's in your name we pray. Amen.